Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Getting In a College Coach Conversation. I'm your host, Ian Fisher, and we're airing this episode on April 29th, just two days shy of the all-important May 1st decision date. So that's the deadline by which all of you seniors out there are going to let colleges know that you plan to enroll. Most of you probably have already made that decision. Um, And so you've just got a couple of days to let those colleges know. And then we are off to thinking about juniors again. Um, So we've got a great show lined up for you today. We're going to talk a little bit about how to get organized in the college research process, both with respect to financial aid and college admission. We're going to talk a little bit about the athletic recruitment timeline. So if you're an athlete who's thinking about playing college sports, that's a great segment for you to stick around for. But before we do that, we've got a great guest here to start the show. Uh, I'm going to introduce Rebecca Barr. Uh, She is here with EF Gap here, which you can find at EF gapyear.com. And uh, we're really happy to have Rebecca here on the show. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, and thanks so much for having me today. I'm glad to have you. Really excited to talk about gap years. And as I was thinking about that in my introduction, May 1st might be the point by which a student chooses to accept an offer of admission. But for every student, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going off to that college in the fall, because a lot of students may be choosing to take a gap year after they graduate from high school. Now, The gap year is something I think a lot of families are comfortable with. They talk about it, but maybe we've got some listeners out there who are newer to this process and might be unfamiliar with the concept of a gap year. How would you define a gap year for those who are unfamiliar? Absolutely. Great question. And I think we see a whole range of different, excuse me, different abilities in terms of knowing what a gap year is all about. Mm -hmm. So we see some families who um, are used to the idea of a gap year, have heard about it for a long time, and others for whom this is really the first exposure to this concept. So um, I would define a gap year as a semester or a year on, not off, uh, typically taken between high school and college in order to deepen one's personal, practical, and professional awareness. So it's something really intentional. It's something that Folks are, are structuring not just as a time to, to sit back and uh, bide your time until the next opportunity, but it's really a time to uh, seize the moment and to get out in the world to learn experientially and to, to grow and develop in new ways. So a year on, not a year off. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is because you really typically, when you have a gap year, are thinking about not necessarily continuing with your academic study, but changing your point of focus. So you're engaging with the world in a way that you might not have been able to do previously in high school. Um, I, I hope. Does that sound right to Absolutely. you? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So, so there are a lot of different ways I think that students can engage with gap years. What are some examples of things that students might do in this time on before they make that transition from high school to college? Yeah, great question. I think we see a few themes from students we're looking to spend that time on. Um, One of the things they're looking for is cultural immersion. So being able to travel, being able to be in a new location, gain some of those skills of cultural awareness, global perspective, language skills, uh, some of those crucial things that you really need to be doing through living, through immersion, through speaking a language every day, through being in a new environment. Mm -hmm. We also see students who want to gain some professional experience. So that might look like a job in their hometown. It might look like an internship halfway across the globe. Uh, It can really look a lot of different ways. uh, And and students are coming to to really get that sort of prototyping of what they might want to be doing later in life. So Mm -hmm. they're really taking that time to explore a career path that they might go down later. Um, And another thing I think we're seeing more and more right now, especially is students want to give back to the world in some way. They want to be uh, doing an activity where they're learning about global issues, learning about their own role in finding solutions to these issues. Um, and maybe that looks like volunteering in their hometown or working on a political campaign. Maybe it looks like going across the world, working and in, in from local NGO leaders in another part of the world and really seeing how they approach different topics. It can look a lot of ways, but we're seeing especially that trend, I'd say, this year in terms of students trying to figure out what their role is in solving some of the global issues that we face today. I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's great to think about it in a variety of different contexts. A lot of people think gap year means you're 
up and traveling out of the country. But there are a lot of different ways to take that gap year and explore different mm-hmm. sorts of opportunities. What you know, you know, you took a gap year, right? When I you did. were a student. Okay. So you're you're speaking also from a, a place of personal experience here. Just if you think back to your own time when you were in high school, you applied for college, you heard back from schools. At what point did the gap year start to be something that you were seriously considering as a part of your own experience? Great question, Ian. So for me, this was 10 years ago now. Okay. I went to high school in Alabama. And that was not a common option for students. Gap year was not well known. In fact, I didn't really even have the term gap year in my vocabulary when I decided to take this year. Yeah, Uh, yeah, but I had uh, already applied to a lot of colleges, gotten into my top choice college, was really excited about it. Um, And then I, I found this opportunity to go to Turkey to spend a year there, really immersed in the language and the culture. Uh, it was through the State Department fully funded program, which was great. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, you know, ended up going there, spending this amazing year and deferring my enrollment to college. So I had a great college admissions officer at Georgetown who helped me work through uh, what that process would be for me. So basically, I say, I commit to you. I'm putting down my deposit, looking forward to seeing you in a year. In the meantime, mm-hmm. I'm going to go off, have this incredible experience and come back to campus more prepared, more ready to you know, contribute to the campus community, more prepared academically, more prepared socially. And I definitely found that when I returned that I was much more ready to maximize my time on campus from day one. That's, I have seen that from students that have taken gap years, both when I was in, in school and then students that when I was working in admission uh, asked for gap years and then came a little bit later is there's a sense of maturity, readiness, even though it is time on, it's away from school. And so it changes, I think your mindset a little bit um, so that you're not always focused on classroom learning, reading, arithmetic, that kind of stuff. It changes your perspective and allows you to come back to college for your first year with a a better sense of of how to fully commit to what your studies are going to look like. So there is a real pronounced sense of maturity and I think a different perspective that comes from students who are are exploring those gap years. Um, And I would just like as an aside here from an admission standpoint, from a, just mechanically speaking, you typically will apply for college as normal in your senior year. And then once you gain admission, just like Rebecca did, you then have an opportunity to request that gap year from the institution where you're planning to enroll. Um, And most schools are going to say yes to that request, especially if you have a plan in mind. Now, if you just say, I want a gap year, Mm. but you have no plan for what that's going to look like, I think schools can be a little concerned that, yeah, we want to make sure that you're still actively engaged with the world in some respect. And so having that plan early on, I think is really important. How did you find this program in Turkey and how do, you know, more broadly students find opportunities to explore gap years? I think a lot of students think conceptually, it sounds really cool, but then they don't know exactly where they would look for that kind of an opportunity. Turkey sounds far away. You know, that seems like something that's not necessarily at your fingertips when you're in high school. Absolutely. Um, Great question. I I want to zoom in on one thing you said there as well, that it's so important to have this plan. And that's really what colleges are looking for mm-hmm. as students take those next steps. That's what they're looking for in those deferral requests. So I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, thinking about how the process begins, um, I think that's where I've been doing a lot of outreach to counselors in high schools across the U.S. because uh, counselors are gradually increasing their knowledge about gap year options and about how that fits in. So um, we've been working together with the Gap Year Association, which is another great resource out there for folks who are starting that research process mm-hmm. to really help educate counselors and educators as well as students and parents about what these options look like. So I would say a process of self-reflection is great. Think about where you're at as you're a sophomore, or junior, or senior in high school. Whenever you're thinking about this decision, it's never too early, I would say. Um, you know, think about what it is that you want to get out of that experience. You know, are you looking for cultural immersion? Are you looking for something closer to home? Are you looking to give back? Are you looking um, for an experience that will really challenge you, push you out of your comfort zone? Um, you know, think about that. Think about your budget. So think about how that would fit in with your your college plans, um, with your, you know, you can use uh, 529 accounts for gap year programs sometimes. Mm. You can apply for different gap scholarships. There are a lot of ways to make gap years financially accessible, but a lot of that requires a little bit of forethought as well. So you can get those scholarship applications in so you can find the right opportunities. And I think you'll also find that folks in the gap realm are really we, we have this really consultative approach. We really want students to find the right experience for them. So don't hesitate to reach out. If you're just doing some Googling, you see a program 
that looks like it might fit your interests, reach out. Uh, there are also individual GAP consultants that work one-on-one -on -one with students to help them find the right GAP path for them, which is great if you want to do something that takes you to a lot of different places. You want to put different pieces together. And of course, I love our EF GAP programs as well, which combine language study, service learning, and internships so that you can get some of those you know, main things that students are looking for in their gap year, we help you put that together. And we can also point you in another direction if our program isn't the right fit for you, but um, it can often be a good fit for students who are looking to do some of those things out in the world. Gotcha. Now, I'm circling back to your experience. You said you were, you were going to Georgetown, you went off to Turkey. Did you by any chance uh, study abroad when you were in college? As well. Sure did. Yes. Went back to Turkey, went to Egypt, and then ended up working abroad for, for many years after I graduated. So I'm wondering, do you have like a particular kind of curiosity or interest in international cultures, international studies in a way that positioned you for this kind of gap year where another student who might be thinking, I don't know, you know, I, I might be interested in physics and I don't think yeah. I need to go to Turkey for physics or I could study abroad when I get to college. What's the, what's the real opportunity that's created by this gap year? I'm wondering, what is it about this particular moment in time where there's a real opportunity for somebody to springboard into a different kind of way of thinking about themselves or the world as they transition to college? Why is this moment mm -hmm. so important? Such a good question. And, you know, my story is one tiny story in a huge bucket of other gap stories. Sure, and I'll say that one common thread, though, that we see is that many students do find their quote unquote thing when they are on their gap year. And for me, that happened to look like international relations and international education. But for other students, I'll, I'll use one of our alums, Annabelle, as an example. Annabelle was planning to go to art school before her gap year. She was pretty excited about that path, didn't really know what she was getting herself into, really just wanted the gap year as some time to take a step back, get out into the world, learn experientially. Um, she wanted to work on her Spanish skills. And as part of her gap year, she spent some time working on a coral reef restoration project in the Dominican Republic. And her eyes were totally open to this new world of marine biology. She loved the coral reef restoration project. She, you know, found this passion that she'd never been able to explore. She'd just never really known was an option for her potential academic and career path. So she ended up totally changing schools, changing to study marine science. She's now a marine science major at Boston University mm. and just loving it. And it was this it was this process that she wouldn't have even been able to go through if she hadn't taken a gap year. And this is a very common theme we see in our students that it's not necessarily something international, but it's something that they are exposed to. It's something that adds value and adds a little bit more refinement to their path as they go to college and beyond. Yeah, it's interesting because there's a contrast, I think, between students that go through high school, they apply for college, they've got a sense of certainty about what it is that they want to study and how they perceive that to push them into a particular career path. Mm -hmm. And then there are students that are so, so much more open. You, they might have an answer about what it is that they want to major in because they feel they have to have an answer to that question, but they still are open to these possibilities. And my assumption would be, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems like the latter kind of student, the one that's a little bit more open to possibilities, to exploration, both about the world and themselves, is going to be a better fit for a gap year. But maybe you can push back on that if you don't perceive that distinction to bear out in reality with, with the kinds of students that are interested in a gap year. Yeah, that's a, an interesting dichotomy that you've put there. And I think most students fall somewhere in the middle of that spectrum that they, they sort of know where they want to go, but they, they're open enough that they want to keep exploring that. Mm -hmm. um, I will say we have students, so I'll, I'll use another example because I always find examples make things a little more tangible. Um, another student of ours, his name is Diego. He knew he wanted to be in the fashion industry. This was his passion all growing up. He was planning to go to fashion school. Um, and after taking his gap year, he was applying to his top choice fashion school um, and was able to really refine his application to focus on some of the things that he was observing when he was working on a service learning project in Costa Rica. So he was seeing the negative impact that the fashion industry was having on the environment. He was learning about ethical labor practices, all of these things that he had never thought about before and um, was really able to reflect on and refine his career in this very specific industry. He's still very committed to this and now is at Parsons and doing great things in fashion and design. 
but he, you know, really was able to refine and think more critically about that path thanks to his gap year. So I think we see students like that as well who have their thing. They know what they're passionate about. They know what they want to do. And a gap year can add some, some layers to that, some, uh, some real thickness to it, for lack of a better word. No, the perspective I think is helpful, and that—that's you know when I whenever I talk about liberal arts and sciences as a potential pathway for students, it's the way that other classes that are outside of your chosen major help to enhance your understanding of your particular major, give you different perspectives on a way that you might solve problems, and so I think the gap year has an example of that kind of value, right? Where it's like, I know what I want to do, but now I can see it from all these different perspectives, and that might influence the way that I approach my career later on down the road. Um, just because I like to be a contrarian sometimes, and, and I think some people like to ask this question, who is not a good fit for a gap year? Like, are there students out there who wouldn't benefit? I know that a small percentage of students ultimately do gap years, but are there students out there who just don't benefit so much from this kind of an experience? Yeah, I would say it's all about finding the right fit experience. So maybe not every experience is right for every student, but mm-hmm. to be honest, I think every student could benefit from this time. You know, we are channeled through this very specific education system as we grow up. We are all we are all blinded by our own communities, our own environments. You know what we're raised, uh, what we see around us, and yeah. getting out of that comfort zone, getting out into the world, um, and really being able to to push yourself outside of your comfort zone to think about the world in new ways can be great for everyone. So it's all about finding the right experience and going through that process of of critical thinking about who you are and what you, you want to be doing in the world. It sounds a lot like the advice that we give. Now, um, you've got, uh, you work with EF Gap Year. And again, that's at efgapyear.com. If anybody's interested in learning a little bit more about your organization and how you support students in this process, what can they find on that website? Where should they go and poke around? How, how would they follow up uh, after this conversation? Definitely. Uh, check out our website. There's a lot of great info there about our different year, semester, and short-term programs. Uh, and there are, is a place there where you can contact us, uh, reach out for more information. You can also contact me directly uh, at rebecca.barr, at ef.com. Happy to answer questions. Happy to be a resource for anyone who's just considering this path and considering these ideas. And follow us on Instagram. We've got a group in Costa Rica right now who are posting a lot of great uh, photos and reflecting on their gap experience at EF Gap Year uh, on Instagram. That's great. Great set of plugs. Uh, if anybody wants to send Rebecca fan mail, that's rebecca.bar at you said ef.com. That's right. Great. Uh, thanks a lot for coming. I, I think the gap year is just such an interesting concept and we've talked about it in a few different ways on this show. So listeners can go back into the archives to find some past conversations, but just so cool to hear from someone who's had that experience and currently sees students in a variety of different contexts that are being successful in that space. So I really appreciate you coming on today. Thanks so much, Ian. It was really a pleasure. All right, folks, when we come back, we're going to talk about athletic recruitment. So you won't want to miss it. Don't go away. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, folks, welcome back to Getting In, a college coach conversation. We just had a great discussion around gap years and how students can engage with a gap year after they've decided where they're going to enroll. 
and can uh, pursue an international or other opportunity before they enroll in college for their first year. Now, we're going to talk next a little bit about students who are interested in athletic recruitment and are likely athletes, hopefully athletes at this point in time as well, and how that fits in with the whole college application process. So joining me to talk about this particular segment is going to be my colleague, Kenan Dick, from the other side of the country. Hey, Kenan, how's it going? Good. We're doing well here. Good. So, Kenan, you're wearing a Rutgers shirt today. Is that something... uh... Is that like just for the fans or? Uh... Uh, just for the fans. Uh, I thought it was apropos for this discussion um, since my oldest son uh, played golf for Rutgers. So Perfect. I thought, uh, why not if we're on camera? <laughs> I love it. No, I love it. So you've got a student athlete in the house or or once had a student athlete in the, in the household. Um, right. And, you know, now we're in a position where we're talking a little bit about athletics. Now, the big question that I want to ask you, and this is something that that comes up quite often when I'm talking with families where a student is interested in college sports. How do I know if I'm good enough? Like, I want to just start with that from the get-go. How do you know if you're good enough to play D1, D2, D3 level college sports? That's a really good question. Um, And we do get that quite often. I think uh, there's a couple of ways to approach this um, in terms of this conversation. I think having um, an honest conversation with coaches, whether that's from your travel team or your varsity coach, et cetera, at at your high school about what their assessment is Mm -hmm. um, can be one approach to this. Depending upon their experience with uh, college athletics, they may be able to give you a a pretty fair assessment of what the likelihood of recruitment would be or the ability to walk on to um, D1, 2, or 3 programs. So that would be one uh, potential option. Another potential option is uh, many of the um, colleges will have ID camps that they take um, or they uh, hold over the summers. Mm -hmm. And um, many times there's an evaluation that goes with that so that students can go do the skills practice, um, play um, for those camps, and get an assessment at the end of whether or not they're going to be kind of anywhere in that pecking order for uh, Division One, Two, and Three. And um, so I think that is, is primarily for most students um, how they can get uh, that assessment. Quite honestly, for students who are um, strong D1 material, they probably already know, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And many times, even as a freshman, they've been contacted. They've already had a coach um, interest from a variety of different sources. So uh, they're already on a lot of people's radars. And that's often how the D1 students will, will kind of get that alert, if you will. And that has to do with the fact that athletes of this caliber are typically playing on travel teams, are already running in these kind of circles, competing against other people who are of that caliber? Is that is that typically the reason that, that they're confident? Or is it just having a skill level in whatever context that they're playing where they are beating everyone else around them, for lack of a better term? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that it depends upon the uh, the the type of sport, if it's a field sport where it's kind of talent-based and not time-based, like uh, swimming or track, yeah. then um, oftentimes they are the superstars, right? I mean, yeah. even as a, a freshman and sophomore, they're often you know the lead scorer for the soccer team. Um, and they just are a standout athlete among their high school, certainly their division, et cetera. And there are some uh, programs um, – you know, like the Haverford School or Hill Academy, those types of, of places where, you know, a good number of students are going to be Division One athletes from that program, right? They're just huge powerhouse programs in the, at the high school level. And so that's going to be a little bit different. But for the, the, for the most part, most students are going to uh, be a standout superstar, you know, in the, the context of normal varsity sports uh, and division sports. Gotcha. I'm thinking about, um, I played high school baseball and I'm thinking about one guy who was a year older than me who ended up in the major leagues uh, and played uh, in the college world series. And, you know, it was, was exceptional, but he was exceptional. Like it was right. very clear that he was the best player. And we occasionally played against people where scouts would show up to watch someone pitch and bring radar guns and you would see them in the stands and they weren't mm-hmm. showing up for my games with those radar guns. They, they knew you know, that I wasn't going to be anywhere on their radar screen. So, so you definitely get that vibe. And I think that as a player, you might just want to have an honest conversation about what your skill level is and whether that means you're going to be actively recruited. So yeah. let's talk a little bit about timeline and how it fits for students of different ages. Now, 
I think that where things are the most salient is going to be with the junior, but let's put them on ice for a moment and think a little bit about freshmen and sophomores. What are some things that I should be doing if I'm a ninth or a 10th grader? I'm in the position where I could be recruited for uh, college sports. How should I be engaging with that process in the first half of high school? I think there's a, a big difference between uh, students that are thinking about Division Three or NAIA versus um, Division uh, One and Two. Okay. The the rules are going to be different for Division Three uh, programs. Uh, primarily, the um, they have all sorts of um, options. The coaches have full ability to contact students almost at any time, even as a, a ninth grader or a tenth grader. Okay. Um, and so, if you're thinking about Division Three. Then, you know, if there are tournaments, showcases, et cetera, or events where there are going to be uh, coaches, then you might want to strike up a conversation with some of those D3 coaches to see what their thoughts were. Um, but for the most part, for Division One athletes, it's going to be the gap between the sophomore and junior year. Once June 15th hits, that's when the floodgates open. And, um, and the coaches have the ability to proactively reach out and, and contact the student. And that's when you'll get a lot of recruiting information, um, especially if, if you're attending those types of showcases and have been noticed at that level. So I think uh, it depends upon if you're D3 or D1 or 2. Um, but usually going into your junior year, you're pretty well aware of where you're going to, to kind of fit in that order and what division is, is most likely going to be your landing zone. Now, and the, the distinction between the rules around coaches contacting, that has to do with the relationship between scholarship dollars and the divisions, correct? Like it, Division three, there's no athletic scholarships that are available for any D3 schools. But for correct. D1 and D2 programs, they do have athletic scholarships available for students. And so the right. rules are because there's money attached to this recruitment process, more or less. To some extent. I think the, the outlier is going to be Division two, where... Okay it's kind of like halfway between division three and division one, even mm -hmm. though they do have scholarships available for students. Um, so their timeline is actually closer to a D three. Uh, they do have more restrictions in terms of unofficial visits and official visits, uh, things of that nature. But in terms of contact, they can do it um, earlier on than division one uh, programs can. Gotcha. So they're a little bit of a hybrid in between. And it also depends upon what the sport is. So okay. For most sports, they have um, June 15th is, is again, when I said the, the floodgates open. But there are unique uh, timelines for football, baseball, basketball, as well as lacrosse, softball, and ice hockey. So those sports um, have a kind of a unique set of windows that you'll have to look at their specific timelines uh, to understand that recruitment process. But okay. those are the outliers as well, even for okay. Division One. But for most students, there's going to be a point around June 15th, a couple of months from now, if I'm a 10th grader moving into 11th grade, where I'm going to have a pretty clear sense of whether I'm a serious college athlete or I'm under consideration for recruitment at D1 schools. And yes. if, I've been, if I've been under consideration from D3 programs, coaches might have been in touch with me. There might have been some conversation that's been happening already. But yep. more likely, I would imagine D3 coaches are focused on older high school students as they're thinking about rounding out their rosters and, and putting those, those teams together. Does that sound right instinctively? It, it does uh, for the most part. I think there are some exceptions to that. I know that um, so there are some strong D3 um, field hockey programs that are a good mm -hmm. example of that where they're done recruiting in the 10th grade. Like they've oh, wow. kind of identified ninth and 10th graders that uh, they already have a verbal commitment with. And it's a matter of kind of seeing that through. Now, of course, there's always going to be shifts in uh, in those commitments because they are just verbal and students get you know, um, injured or what have you and, and uh, coaches change and things of that nature. But for the most part, I think that, that you're right in terms of June 15th being the time when, when you can expect the, the greatest amount of activity. Gotcha. So let's talk about these different forms of communications. Now, my understanding is that students are able to reach out and contact coaches for questions anytime that they would like to be able to do so. But you're saying that D1 coaches have restrictions on how they can contact the student athletes directly and that there are restrictions on visits. Let's just make sure that we understand the concept of the official visit or the unofficial visit and how that fits into the whole recruitment process. That's complicated. <laughs> okay. Um, You've only got a few minutes here, Kenan. So Yeah, I know. <laughs> so with the official visits, um, well, let's, put, let's set those aside for the moment. 
Um, unofficial visits are basically the family is paying for the visit. Um, they're, they're meeting the coach during that visit, but there's no expenditure on the coach's part. Um, okay. So I'm so in town and I'm visiting campus and I stop by the coach's office and I say, hi, my name's Ian Fisher. I got a 60 mile an hour fastball exactly. and that's it. Okay, great. Right. Yeah. But they're not flying you in and, and doing all of that. Um, so, and for the most part, um, division one does allow for unofficial visits only after August 1st, uh, between the sophomore and junior year. So even at division one, even the unofficial limits have a specific or unofficial visits have a specific timeline. Okay. The official visits uh, for division one, they um, actually changed the rules. So now the students can do an official visit in their junior year. However, they're still limited to only five official visits at the D1 level. Okay. So you need to be careful about um, where you're um, choosing to go uh, for those official visits um, and the programs that you and campuses that you want to go see. Gotcha. So if I'm a, a likely recruit for a D1 school, I might have lots of invitations to do an official visit but I should be choosy about which ones I take them up on Exactly. Um, because, because of, is that just because of funding or like, if I wanted to go see the other schools, I would have to then do an unofficial visit and that would cost me money out of pocket to go and visit that campus, but I could still do an unofficial visit for another school, right? You could still do an unofficial visit. That's correct. Okay. Uh, but in terms of paid official visits, uh, division one athletes are limited to five. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Now let's, um, so we've got the visits, the unofficial visits, the, um, the official visits. D3 doesn't seem to have a whole lot of that uh, rolled into their process. Um, and it seems like the majority of student athletes are in the D3 category, like nationwide, or is that right? Absolutely. Okay. Yep, gotcha. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how this starts to intersect with the actual admission and application process. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the point at which you've got some sense of clarity about which schools are recruiting you? And then how does that start to fit in with the college application process? Maybe you can answer that first part first. So like, when does this start to look really clear where you're saying, all right, here are some schools where the coaches are interested in me as a player. Right. Um, that can take place, uh, anywhere in that timeline, depending okay. upon, um, whether or not the match has been made between student athlete and the school. Mm-hmm. So I actually just got off the phone last hour with um, a student who is a golf recruit and, um, and the coaches, she's at the, you know, she's in her junior year, spring of her junior year. And the coaches are telling her to send in her applications now. Wow. So, um, wow. so it can take place rather early. Most yeah. of the athletes that I've worked with, by the time they hit mid September, the process is pretty much over. They've either mm-hmm. sent in an early decision application for the D3 programs or division one programs like the Ivies, et cetera. Um, or they've made a commitment where they're um, saying they're only going to, um, to play for that one school in the case of like a Wesleyan, for instance, and the application has already been sent in by somewhere from August to early September. So the, the advice that I have for parents of, um, of athletes is to be prepared for that type of early timeline, which means mm-hmm. you're writing essays earlier you're telling your teachers that they may need to have those recommendation letters done by August 1st in some cases so that that's ready to go and ready to be submitted. Um, so it does kind of shift everything forward a bit. And to avoid that big scramble in August, you want to make sure that everyone that needs to react to that, that's going to be your guidance counselors and your teachers primarily, knows that that is a possibility. We always talk about the importance of taking care of the people who are advocates for you in the application process, your letters of you know, recommendation, writers, counselors, teachers, communicate with them, be open, be transparent, help them help you, right? Like um, right. it's huge. It reflects well on you and your letters of recommendation. And it, you just want to take care of those people. Um, now, uh, the admission process especially a lot of students will think about uh, athletic recruitment as an opportunity to get into a school where that might be a reach for them academically, but they've got this athletic profile that is desirable for that school. Now, ultimately, the final decision comes down to the admission office. They decide who gets into that school. The coaches would love to, but while they have some input at varying levels, depending on the sport, depending on the division, they don't have the final say. The admission office does. How do students engage with that sort of reality as they look at their, their whole recruitment process. I think primarily what you're going to see is that um, 
the coaches will ask for transcripts early on. And, mm -hmm. and if the student has scores uh, fairly early on to be able to take those transcripts and the material that they're asking for to the admissions office and get um, a green light for recruitment. Okay. So that often happens in the spring of the junior year and the summer of the, after the junior year. And once they get that green light, um, then primarily it's going to be um, getting the application material in early, like I was saying before, so that they can get those decisions made um, early in the, in the process. So oftentimes, like I had a, a student who was um, on her way to Brown and she had her decision October 1st um, as an early decision applicant. Wow. So different schools are going to, uh, within that short spectrum, uh, that short window, be able to um, to make some of those decisions. Now, with uh, Division One athletes, um, there's the the admissions process, but then there's also the scholarship process, and they would often uh, sign their national letter of intent sometime in early November. Uh, there's different windows there, but uh, that's when you're making that official commitment. And in order to go to, go to another school, you would have to be released from that um, national letter of intent by your coach to be able to pursue another option. Gotcha. And I think at that point, you've got some pretty clear sense of how the different restrictions work. You're, you're a veteran of the recruitment process by that point and have figured a lot of that stuff out um, once you get there. Right. It always seems like, I mean, when we talk about this internally among our team and we've got questions around athletic recruitment, some of our experts in this space like you will say early, early, early. Like this is just a, a case where you're really shifting the entirety of the college application process forward by four to six months. And so it's just a matter of being open and communicative and being on top of things if you are a student athlete. And I think it, it sounds like it really places a, a more of a priority even on how you do in 11th grade academically if you're looking at those schools that want to give you that review because mm -hmm. that's going to be a way of sewing up that admission offer at a place where you want to play a particular sport and the coach already has your back, get the admissions office on your side as well. Exactly. Um, do you have any final tips that you would want to give in the last few, few seconds we've got here? Yeah. The only other thing that I would mention that we haven't talked about for, especially for D one students is um, just paying attention to the NCAA eligibility center and making mm -hmm. sure that you fill out your profile, which basically asks whether or not you're um, uh, an amateur athlete and then make sure that you coordinate with whoever it is in the, the counseling office that the final transcripts with those uh, 14 core courses um, will be sent to the eligibility center with your profile number so that you can get a final academic um, eligibility. And that's, so because that's another step for the D1 students. So the NCAA is governing, governing the competition at that level. And so they have their own set of rules and restrictions outside of the context of what a particular college might prefer that you have. Correct. Okay. Perfect. Correct. Ken, I think that makes sense. Uh, so if you are a student who's interested in recruitment, make sure you practice, make sure you shift things early, stay on top of your grades, stay on top of your sport. And uh, I guess eat well and get a lot of sleep, right? I mean, yep. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Thanks a lot, Ken. And this is always great. I always learn something when we're talking about athletics. It's, it's just such a complicated process. And hopefully this helps people understand it a little bit better. Terrific. Glad to help. Awesome. When we come back, we're going to talk about getting organized through the admission and financial aid process. Last segment of the show. You won't want to miss it. We'll see you after the break. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one -on -one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to 
gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hey folks, welcome back to this week's episode of Getting In, a college coach conversation. College coach conversation. I can say that 10 times fast. It's really hard, this job. Okay, uh, before I get to our final segment, I want to tell you about a competition between now and May 4th. Every listener who reviews us on Apple Podcasts will be entered in a raffle to win two free hours of college counseling with our host, Beth Heaton. I don't know why they're not offering me up for two free hours. I guess Beth is, is <laughs> more interesting. All you have to do is you can leave a review and you'll automatically be entered. Beth is great. You're going to love these two hours. Um, mm-hmm. So we're going to have a randomly selected winner and announce on May 13th. Keep an eye out for that. Review us on Apple Podcasts. Five-star reviews go along way. Okay. We are here for the final segment and joining me, if you're watching on uh, our Facebook page, you can already see is Jean Mahan. Hey, Jean, welcome to the show. How are you, Ian? It's great to see you today. I'm doing well. It's great to see you as well. So we are talking about getting organized today, and you are a college finance expert. I'm a college admissions expert. We work with students and parents and families every year in helping them get organized around this process, which has a lot of different pieces that are connected, uh, a lot of different things to try and understand. So let's just say we're starting with a brand new family. It's April. Wow, it is April, uh, heading into May. How do we want to start to talk to them about getting organized for the application process coming this fall? Where would you begin? So I'm like an organizational nut. I feel, you know, <laughs> I feel most comfortable at one of those big box stores that has container in it. It's my okay. place. But I always encourage families to set up some sort of a tool that they're comfortable with, whether that's a spreadsheet, a notebook, a whiteboard, list all the schools and the dates. What date is the admissions application? Do they accept Common App or Coalition? Do they have their own? What types of financial aid applications do they need? Just a FAFSA or do they also need the CSS profile? Do they have a specific deadline for scholarship applications? Too many times I've talked to families who were interested in the XYZ university, were pretty sure their student would get merit, and then realized they had missed the deadline, all because mm-hmm. they didn't have this information somewhere where they could all see it. Yeah. So really, really important because you know, one university has a deadline. It doesn't mean its next door neighbor has the same one. So you <laughs> no. want to make sure you know all of them. It certainly doesn't. And we were just talking with Ken in last segment about the athletic recruitment process and how that really shifts things forward a little bit. But I think it's really safe to say that there are no deadlines that you'll miss if you start in May, June, early summer, trying to get organized. You're not exactly. going to be at, at risk of missing something. But if you start putting this stuff together in October, uh, then you run the risk of you know running up against some real some deadlines that you might miss, and and you don't right. want to be in that kind of circumstance right. um, because schools have deadlines for a reason. They've got to stay organized. They have mm-hmm. to stay on top of things. Right. And if you, for example, are looking for financial aid and you miss the deadline, it could have some serious repercussions. It might mean that you don't qualify. You're not eligible at all because they've mm-hmm. run out of money, or they might put you to the back of the bus just after they review all their continuing students too. Right. Which could mean maybe you'll get some, but it will be a much reduced package. So this is kind of the I view this period right now between April and June is kind of the calm before the storm. Okay. So this is a great time to be going on to the different schools' websites and you know checking for those forms and deadlines and what their requirements are and setting up that spreadsheet. I think probably every parent can identify with this situation where it's nine or 10 o'clock in the evening, your kid shows up in your room and says, I need a black turtleneck for chorus, or I have a test tomorrow, and I left my notes at school. This is not what you want to happen in this process. And no. so having all these dates available, post them in a place where everyone can see them, it'll definitely cut down on the stress and the, the feeling that parents sometimes have of that they're nagging their children. So um, this organization will cut down on all of that. And as I always say to people, if organization is not your thing, well, once this is over, you can go back to whatever was working for you before. But just for this- Got to be organized now. Year, right. Just now. Just this like one year period. That's and right. then you can go back to your other- other methods of staying or not staying organized. That's right. That's right. I, and it, you know, it's a great, it's a great reminder that, you know, some of the stuff like the black turtleneck or the the notes, like these are one-time things and it's, you, you can find a way to, to fake it. But, but when you're talking about significant 
financial aid dollars, or you're talking about missing an application to a school, these are really, you know, it happens one time. And so you don't want to be in a position where you're, you're missing those deadlines. Now for me, Gene, you know, I've got a fair number of juniors that I'm working with. Mm -hmm. They're not really paying any attention to me right now. They are in AP study mode. They are pushing to the end of the year and that's perfectly fine. I'm happy to take a step back and let them finish school because that's a priority for me uh, and for them as they're, they're getting ready for their, their applications in the fall. But I think parents can sometimes be a little bit anxious to want to get things going. Mm -hmm. So you had suggested to me that, that students can use the parents, they can almost assign them tasks to get things going here. And parents can find a way to sort of, I don't know, like bridge that gap between where a student starts researching colleges, then they go radio silent because they're focused on academics, and then they're starting to execute the work. How would you think about the interplay between students and parents being team members of a, of a project here and getting organized? So I view parents as the project managers. I assign them that title for this pro- process. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a great way for parents to stay involved, but not to be involved in things that they shouldn't be, like filling out the application or writing the essay. But this is a way they can be involved and really help their students stay on track. So they're yeah. not missing deadlines. So they're not feeling like, oh my gosh, I have four applications due tomorrow and I'm only half done. So, you know, parents having done the research. And, you know, if you can involve your student, that's great. But this is a busy time of year. And with schooling so interrupted this year, it just adds another layer of complexity to an already complex process. So, you know, even if parents want to stay busy and start doing this research, setting up whatever tool it is you plan to use, that way you can say to your student, okay, we want to get some target dates down for the summer. We want to have maybe a couple of essays ready, you know, at least in their final draft form by the end of the summer. We want to have the common app almost completed before you return to school because it would be like having one more class when school starts to be getting all this done in addition to your AP classes. Maybe you're in a club or you're in sports or whatever other extra extracurricular activities you have. So really, really using this as the parent can really take hold of this, get the kids set up for success, really you know, and for lessening the stress around the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, when you think about a good project manager, that's somebody that helps to set up the circumstances for other people to execute tasks and be Mm -hmm. successful. And if you've got a project manager that's doing everything, they're not doing their job, right? The responsibility is to empower people, other people to engage with that process. And so I, I I love that metaphor um, for this particular process. I also think that there are, there really are things that students don't need to be doing. They don't need to be looking up deadlines. Like they certainly can, and I'm happy for them to do so. They don't need to look up deadlines. They don't have to look up when the financial aid deadlines are, what the scholarships are. But as a project managing parent, you can say, your job is to research this college. Your job is to look into this academic program. There are some things that I think students have to be really close to, just like you might have a realtor that goes out and look at homes for you, but ultimately deciding to buy it is something where you've got to walk through mm-hmm. and say, is this a place that I want to live? No realtor can make that final decision for you. Exactly. And gathering and, ma- and using that information, I think, really is close mm-hmm. to the students. Right. Um, we've talked a lot internally about research um, just over the last few days, mm-hmm. I think because a lot of seniors are still trying to make their decision. Right. On our side, on the admission side, there's a lot of really subjective stuff. You know, how strong is this program or that program? How much do my teachers connect with me? Like, it just, it really depends on the person who's doing the research to interpret the data. Mm-hmm. On the finance side, to what extent is there um, just hard answers to the research questions versus things that do have that subjective feel to them? Um, how do you think about approaching research with the, on the finance side with, with parents and students? So, I mean, in an ideal world, which we really don't live in, parents and students would be thinking about this prior to by using tools like net price calculators to determine if they're eligible for financial aid. Yeah. I think a lot of the calls I get, especially in the next week and a half, are really people that are sort of panicking, that haven't really thought about it, thought their students would be eligible for more financial aid than they were or would get a merit scholarship. So just get yourself armed with the information before. Yeah. Um, think about what you're willing to pay. And, and if you if we have some of our listeners are ninth or 10th grade parents, start talking to your students about that. You know, what mom and dad can afford to pay, how much we should be borrowing, you know, what is your uh, expected 
income post-graduation so that you have those um, metrics, then it might make it easier. And I think the biggest thing I said to my own children, and I, I recommend to other kids, only apply to schools where you can actually see yourself. Because mm-hmm. what seems to happen so often is your reach or challenge school, you're not likely to get any merit money from them. But your no problem school comes back with twenty or $30,000, making a very affordable option. And then the student says, you know what? I don't even want to go to that school. I had no interest in that in the first place. And it's yeah. like, oh. And I've had a ton of conversations in April like that. So, you know, it really will help if if price is a consideration that if all schools being equal, maybe you can choose the one that's based on who gave you the most money. I, you know, I'm glad you said it, Gene, so I didn't have to because I feel like <laughs> I say this all the time. But like, you, you, yeah, there's no reason to apply to colleges that you're not going to seriously consider attending. Mm-hmm. Like when we talk about a school being a safety school, we don't even like safety here at College Coach. We talk about them as being no problem to get into. Right. The idea isn't that this is a worse school. It's that you have done the work such that you are in a position where this school is really likely to accept you. That's good. That's a good thing. And it also means on the finance side, that school might be much more generous when they're making offers of of recruitment scholarships to you. These are good things. And so I think that that's a great place to leave it is that you you really have to be in a position where you are thinking about the the total outcome of this process. You want to mm-hmm. set yourself up for success, but you want to also anticipate what might be coming down the pike and how you're going to react given all the information that you have at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Any final tips? You've got something for us for 15 seconds? 15 seconds. Just get started now, <laughs> you parents of 11th graders, and really get you know get organized because you've already seen the influx of mail both through your front door and um, email and, you know, help your child to be able to kind of go through that and determine, you know, what's a marketing thing and what's somebody who really wants you. So that's right. That's right. Every college is going to say they want you, but who really, mm-hmm. wants you? and who do you who really loves you? Like, yeah. You're, you're in charge here. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much for coming. You're welcome. Thanks uh, for having me. Of course. We're going to be back next week. Sally's going to take the hosting chair. We're going to start the med school series. Maybe we're continuing the med school, med school series. Talk about the pre-med application options for high school students. We'll be talking about what to do after you've deposited and all that hard work is over. And then work study, uh, student employment, and internships and how that dovetails with college finance. So we look forward to seeing you here again next week. It'll be the month of May. Enjoy. Have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.